Last week, we began by looking in the book of Acts. Now, the book of Acts is the chronology, it's the history of the New Testament. These things happen and it gives us the order. And so when we were doing that, we followed Paul's journey to the city of Philippi. And of course, we're reading the, the book called Philippians, which is writing back to that church. Now, you'll recall and that Paul had received a vision to go to this town of Philippi. So there on your outline, uh, he's in this area. Actually, let me go over to the map first. You see that the word Troas, which is just a little to the right, that's in the area of what's called Asia back then. We would call it modern-day Turkey. There on your outline, Paul is there, and he receives a vision, and God says, come over to Macedonia. Or he receives a vision of a man saying, come over to Macedonia. I want you to underline the word Macedonia, And so then it says, and so we traveled to Philippi, to Philippi. So you see, Paul travels from this town of Troas, across the Aegean Sea, up to this area called Philippi. And you'll see that the, or the town called Philippi, but the area is called Macedonia. Uh, We point to more of a a northern Greece, and that's kind of the idea. So Paul goes to Philippi, and uh, you want to write this down. That was in 51 AD. That's going to be important for our study today. He's going to leave Philippi, and he's not going to come back for apparently five years. So I want you to write down, Paul goes to Philippi, or visits Philippi in 56 AD. So as you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that uh, in 56 AD, in chapter 20, it'll say, we sailed from Philippi. So he'd come back. Five years later, he shows up, he visits for seven days, and uh, doesn't see the Philippians again for for, uh, several years. The idea is that Paul does not see the Philippians all that much. I mean, there are years in between visits. So then we find that Paul was arrested in 57 AD. So if I could show you the map, if you were to go all the way to the right and you go all the way down, Paul finds himself back in Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested in Jerusalem by the Romans at this point. He's going to be held for two years in a town called Caesarea. It's not on the map. Ultimately, they're going to take him to Rome. That's going to take about six months. You can see Rome all the way to the left and all the way up to the top. And uh, when he gets to Rome, uh, he's going to be there for two years. There on your outline, it says for two whole years. I want you to underline that. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented, that'll be important, house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is taken to Rome. He's going to be a prisoner at this point for a little more than four years as our story picks up. He's going to be in what we would call house arrest, and that'll be important. Some hold that when Paul was in Rome, that he was chained 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier. And there's, there are those who hold that, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of possibility for that. And uh, then they say, because Paul was always given the gospel, that they weren't chained to Paul so that Paul could escape. Uh, they were chained so that they couldn't escape. So that one died. Forget that one. <laughs> but, but, but others hold, and I would be more of this, because Paul's in house arrest, that he is there not chained to a Roman officer, but there is a Roman officer there in the house that is guarding him. And they would come in shifts. And so Paul would be able to share the gospel with them. 
Later on in chapter 1, we're going to find that Paul is going to say, I am in chains for Christ. So as Paul writes to the Philippians, he's telling them that he is currently in chains. It's house arrest, but he is still in chains. At this point, Paul has been a prisoner for four years. And so he's been in chains for four years. Most would hold that the chains were around his legs so that um, it would keep him from escaping. So he'd be in house arrest, but if you tried to escape and you're running down the street and you've got chains, people are going to notice. So you, know, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get very, very far. So he's living in a rented house, and so Paul is going to write back to the Philippians in 62 AD. And you want to write that down. 11 years after being there the first time, and after four years of being a prisoner and uh, being in chains, he's going to write back. Now, when you read a commentary on, on Philippians, all the commentaries will say something like, it appears that the Philippian church was Paul's favorite church. And you want to write that down. It's considered Paul's favorite church. There's something unique about this church that's not found in any other church that makes them so special to Paul. Paul is going to say things to this church that he does not say to any of the other churches. Now you will recall from last week when Paul came to the town of Philippi, uh, he looked for a synagogue, but there wasn't enough Jewish people to make a synagogue, enough Jewish males to make a synagogue. And uh, so uh, typically when Paul would go to a town, he'd like to go to a synagogue and begin with Jewish people because they had an amazing command of what we, we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures of their Bible. And so as he would explain Christ, from the Old Testament, what we would call it, they would connect the dots and all of a sudden their discipleship, their ability to share it would be already there as, as the lights come on. Now, but this town, there wasn't enough Jewish people to make a synagogue. So one of the things that we're going to find is that in this town, this church, you want to write this down, most Philippian Christians were formerly pagan, formerly pagan. So this church, after losing touch with Paul for several years, they don't know where where he's at. We'll talk about that next time. They hear that Paul is in prison in Rome, and so they are going to send a financial gift in order to help him out. So this letter that Paul writes back is a thank you letter for their assistance financially. They're going to send that financial gift by way of a man named Epaphroditus. There on your outline, it says, Epaphroditus, my brother, also your messenger. Epaphroditus is going to be the one. That'll be in Philippians chapter 2. Just to show how pagan this town is, if you look at the word Epaphroditus and you take your pen, I want you to cross out the EP in the front. Just cross that out so you can't read that. And then go to the end of Epaphroditus and just cross out the S. And what word is there in the middle? Aphrodite would be, the, would be the word. That would be the prominent God in that area. As a matter of fact, in Corinth, where Paul went to after this, that would be where they would have their main temple. The idea is that this man was named after Aphrodite, the pagan, the pagan god, the goddess of sex and love. You know, when you come to church and uh, you look across the way and you see there's a guy there, he's got his Bible, he's serving the Lord, loves the Lord, and, and uh, you go up to him, you want to meet him, and you say, you know, what's your name? He says, my name is Muhammad. Something inside of you says, you probably weren't born a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. You know, your parents had picked a team and they named you after that. So this, this church is going to come from a very pagan background. This is going to be very important because they came from such a pagan background. We're going to find that this church, the Philippian church, was a 
persecuted church. And you want to write that down. At the end of chapter 1, Paul is going to say to them, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. And I want you to underline that. So, you know, I, I love the testimonies where somebody comes and they say, you know, before I met Jesus, my business was failing. My marriage was a wreck. You know, I was depressed. I met Jesus. My marriage has never been better. My business is skyrocketing. And if that's your testimony, that's awesome. But that would not be the testimony of the Philippians. Their testimony was, I was doing great. Everybody liked me. I met Jesus. Now they're beating me and throwing me into prison. Nobody will do business with me. And my family members won't speak to me. It's kind of the thing. So uh, keep that in mind. They are a persecuted church. Now, because they are a persecuted church, and there'll be more persecution here than at other places, what we're going to find is that they are going to have a unique understanding of Paul's ministry, what Paul is going through. So they're going to respond differently than the other churches. They're going to do something that no other church would do. So they're going to be very, very special to Paul. Paul will love all of the churches, but this church will be very special to Paul. One of the things that we're going to find in this, and I want you to write this down, is that the theme in this book is going to be joy. Uh, We would say joy in difficulty. That word is going to appear 19 times in this book. But they are a suffering church, so it's going to be having joy in those difficult times. But also, as a suffering church going through difficulty, um, we're going to find that this church is unique in that they really are trying to be who it is that God has called them to be. So there's going to be a word that's missing when Paul writes to this church that seems to appear to many of the other churches. So the word that's going to be missing as Paul writes to this church is the word sin. You want to write that down. That word does not appear in the Philippian letter. Now that's interesting to me because Paul uh, doesn't have to use the word sin because they're really trying to, to follow the Lord. But when you go to the, uh, as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, I put it there in your outline, he has to say, everybody see this? Stop sinning. Does everybody see that? It's very, very, very stern, 1 Corinthians 15. So the tone of Philippians is going to be very encouraging, which uh, the tone to Philippians is going to, or to Corinthians is going to be very corrective. And that'll be important for our study. So we're going to pick it up in verse one. It says, Paul and Timothy of, of chapter one, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Um, Paul and Timothy take the title uh, some of your Bibles will say it differently. Some will say bond servants, some will say slaves, some will say, just say servants. But it was a term that was used for a slave. They said, we're just slaves of Jesus. That's who we are. They write to the church and they say to the saints. Now, in the Bible, and I, I know that not every church thinks this way, but in the Bible, anytime the word saint is used, it's always referring to somebody who's just in the church. If you're in the church and you're a believer, you are a saint. They're not a a special class of people. They're just believers. So you want to turn to the person next to you and you want to call them St. George, St. Fred, St. Bill, and that would be the idea. So keep that in mind as you speak to people. The overseers, bishops, however your Bible says it, those would be the pastors and the deacons. That word just means servants. That's a conversation for another day. So verse 2, he says, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace would be the Greek 
greeting and peace would be the Hebrew greeting. So he says, grace and peace from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So interesting as we go on, I'm not going to talk about that too much, but we're going to go to verse 3. Paul's just going to really pour it on. Here he says with your pen in hand, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy, underline the word joy, in my every prayer for you all, in my every prayer for you all. Paul says, every time I think of you, it makes me, I I just thank God every time I think of you, and it causes me to want to pray for you with a great deal of joy. I just have joy when I think of you, and I pray with you with great joy. I love that because uh, this is going to be a unique church to Paul. What he says here is going to be very different than what he says to other churches. For instance, when Paul greets the Corinthian church, Paul would say something very different. Paul says there in your outline, he says, you know, I, I, I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. Some people see that as a backhanded compliment. When I think of you, I'm thankful that God gives grace. That's a, I'm, I'm just thankful that God gives grace when I look at you is the idea. So keep that in mind. So Paul here, he doesn't say that to the Philippians. Here he lavishes it on them. Verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. I'm just, I pray, it's with joy, and I continue doing that. So the question is, what is the difference? Why does Paul say, I, think, I just thank God every time I think of you, versus I thank God for his grace when I think of you. What's the difference? Well, verse 5 tells us how many of you have a verse 5 that begins with the word because. Because. Good. You want to underline that, because. Now, we get there with the other translations, but the word because is the one that really pops, and that's, that's what it's really saying. So I've put it there on your outline. He says, I just thank God, and, and here's, it's because. Now, there on your outline, because of your partnership, and that word will be kononia, in the gospel from the first day until now. This church, Unique, has been partnering with Paul, with him in ministry from the very first day until now. Now, it's important to note as we followed the chronology, as best we can tell, Paul was only there two times over a period of what is now 11 years. But they've been partnering with him from the very beginning. And he uses that term partnership. Um, Some of your Bibles might say something like fellowship. How many of your Bibles say fellowship? Good. Um, the challenge with that is that the English language changes over time. So what fellowship meant 400 years ago, it's, it's very different now. The, the word partnership is the best way to translate that, that word. Fellowship is good. Um, that word there, partnership or fellowship, is koinonia. Now how many of you grew up in the church and you heard the term koinonia all the time? Good, good, good. Um, now koinonia, because the Bible says fellowship, Uh, we have what we called koinonia groups. And so we thought koinonia, this fellowship, was where we would all get together in more of a small group type meeting and we would be there and, you know, love one another and pray and and that sort of thing, which is true. That's true. But 
when you look at the actual definition of koinonia, I put it there in your outline, we notice something. Koinonia is a partnership, uh, literally participation, and some of your Bibles will say partnership or participation, or pecuniary, I'm not sure if I pronounced that word right, Um, that means money. That's all that word means, money. Benefaction, that is they gave money to Paul's ministry. And uh, that's going to be important. So you want to write this down. What Paul is thankful for is he was thankful for their financial support. Write that down. The book of Philippians is a thank you letter back to this church for their financial support of the ministry. So when we come to chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul's going to spell it out. Here's what he's going to say. What makes this church unique? There in your outline. You yourselves also know Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, underline that, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, underline, but you alone, you alone. For even in Thessalonica, underline that, you sent a gift more than once for my needs, once for my needs. So let's go ahead and look at a map if we can. Uh, We know from last week, Paul is in Philippi. He takes a beating beating there. He has to leave and he goes just to the south to this town called Thessalonica. Does everybody see that? Now what's important is that Paul was there for a short period of time, only a few weeks. How many weeks was Paul in Thessalonica? Everybody take a guess. Anybody? Three weeks. That's actually right. For those of you who are listening online, I want you to know that the people in the auditorium today, they knew that. So he was there for three weeks. And what does it say? It says, you alone, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. What that means is that once they became believers, they immediately began giving and they took part of what was being given and they sent it on a weekly basis down to Paul. So we notice there he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica and then we're going to find that he's going to go all the way down to Corinth. Now the interesting thing about Corinth, if, you, uh, if you're with our study, Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months, an entire year and a half. Later on, after Paul leaves Corinth, they have these questions. And so they come to Paul and with a list of questions and they're asking Paul to answer the questions. And when we went through that, we noticed that uh, every chapter, it seemed, Paul would say, now concerning, now concerning. And that book was, or that letter was written to answer their questions. One of the things that we saw in that is that although they came to Paul, who was ministering far away, when they showed up, they showed up with a list of questions, but they, they never really did anything to help the ministry, at least financially. So Paul, when he's writing back to their questions, Paul says this. I want to put it on the screen right there. Just visualize it on the screen. Have faith. A little more faith. There it is. So Paul writes back to the Corinthians and he says, you know, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and I was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, what church was in Macedonia? 
Philippi, it was the Philippian church, they fully supplied my need because the Corinthians, they loved what Paul was doing, but they weren't going to support it financially. Whereas the Philippians, they recognized the need and they spontaneously began to do that. So uh, again, after he left Corinth, they didn't support, they didn't support while he was there. And so he said that. So Paul is thanking them for their financial support. That verse again there in your outline, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, underline this, in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul was thankful that they gave consistently. You want to write that down. From the first day until now, it's been 11 years. So when he was in Thessalonica, they gave out of their need, even though they were suffering. When he was in Corinth, they gave. And now we find that he is in Rome. In Rome, he is living in, we saw it, a rented house. Remember we underlined that? How does a man who is a prisoner in Rome with chains, how does he have the resources to get out of the dungeon and live in a rented house? How does he do that? Because the Philippians cared for Paul in the ministry and they sent the finances to make that happen. Does that make sense? Because you don't live in a rented facility as a prisoner in Rome in chains when you can't get a job unless some other believers step in and participate. So having said that, that's the, the first part. So Paul says, because you participated with me in this from the first day until now. And then Paul is going to mention a verse that we're all very, very familiar with. Um, Sometimes what we do is we go to the Bible, and if you know me, I'm really big on verses, and I have a stack of verses for each day, and I go through them. I I, I begin my time with the Lord by going through those. It's a great reminder, and because I want to believe what they say. So I always encourage that. One of the things that we can do if we're not careful, we can take a verse out of the Bible, disconnect it from everything that it's talking about, and we can apply it to just about anything and everything except what it's actually talking about. This next verse that we're going to look at is a verse that many will take out of its context, never look at its context, and, and, and uh, apply it to everything but its context. So what's that verse? Well, it's Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, for I am confident of this very thing. By the way, how many of you in your Bibles where Paul says, for I am, that part is leaning to the right, it's italicized. Okay, anytime you see that, that tells you that's not in the original manuscripts that's added in for readability, but it's not actually in the original manuscripts. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So um, that's, that's interesting to me because that's one of those verses that we take, we apply to everything, but we never apply it to the actual context of what it's actually speaking about. So in, in verse 4, um, Paul, or actually verse 5, Paul says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, um, then verse 6 he says, I'm confident of this very thing 
that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In its context, if you were to read a commentary on this, and one of my favorite commentaries is the NIV Life Application Commentary, and it takes this verse and it explains it like this. Paul thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel, not only because of the practical assistance, they sent finances, it provided for the advancement of the gospel, but also because it stands as a confirmation that God is at work in the lives of the Philippians. Paul says, I'm confident that God began a good work in you. And you know how I'm confident? Because the truth is, no one in the midst of their own hardship would ever support the ministry if God was not actually doing a work in their lives. That's the context of what it's talking about. Does that make sense? So you want to write this down. Their practical partnership gave Paul the confidence that God is at work in the lives of the Philippians. And the truth is, again, nobody would give to the ministry, especially not foreign missions, in the midst of their own difficulty, suffering, persecution, if God had not really began a work in them. So that's the context. Now we can apply it in different ways. A couple of things I want to say. Um, You want to write this down. Because God finishes what he starts, they have eternal security. God is the one who started it, and God is the one who is going to finish it. If you're a believer here today, it's not because you started this. The Bible says that he was seeking you. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he began that good work in you, and he's the one who's going to complete it. Now that's important because if he began it, at least in my life, uh, you, you probably might do a little bit better, but in my life, if he began it and I had to finish it, it's not going to go well. I'm going to mess it up. We'd all mess it up. So, so he is going to finish what it is that he has started. That allows you to rest. You serve the Lord because you love him. You have a rest in the relationship. So there in your outline. My sheep, Jesus would say, hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. That is incredible security. You're in his hands. You can't get you out. Another way that he would say this In Hebrews, he would say it like this, for by one offering, he has perfected or made complete for all time those who are sanctified. It's all based upon what he did, not what you do. You respond to what he did, and then you are perfected. The word, I I like the word complete uh, more. The idea is that uh, you're never more saved. When uh, a baby is born, Uh, they are completely human. Now we would say when a baby is conceived, they are completely human. But when a baby is born, they are completely human. Five years later, as they grow, are they more human? They, they They can never be more human than they were at that point. When you become a believer, you are never more saved. Uh, you, you, You just are, like a baby. You grow but you never become more saved. You become well, hopefully more spiritual, but, but not more saved. You are complete in Christ, and that's the idea. So 
um, you are always saved. You have that eternal security. So that's the first thing I'd want to say. Verse 6 again, he says, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So one of the things that we see is that God is doing a work. He's doing a work in my life and he's doing a work in all of our lives. And those who are believers, he's doing a work in their lives. So here's a lesson for us. God isn't finished with them, so be patient. That might only be for me. But sometimes I can be frustrated with where somebody else is at. And I'm good where I'm at, but I'm frustrated where somebody else might be. And so here's, the, here's our big mistake. You want to write this down. We tend to judge people by how far they have to go rather than by how far they have come. And again, that might just be for me but we need to be patient because God is completing the work, uh, not, not us. Well, so far so good? Okay. So I want to go back now to our context of what he's talking about. We've had some applications. Go back to the context. So Paul says in verses 3 and 4, he says, you know, I remember you with joy and I pray for you and I, just, I love to do that. Verse 5, because you alone partnered, participated koinonia with me in the ministry. The other churches would not do that. And that gave me confidence. That gives me confidence to really know that God is doing something in your life. He began that in you because the truth is nobody would do that unless God had really began a work in their life. Now based upon that, in light of all that, he says in verse 7, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. You know, we're, we're, no matter what my situation is, he would say to the Philippians, he'd say, if, I was, if I'm in prison where he is now, if, if I was out defending the gospel, if I'm, what, whatever it is I'm doing, you were always there right there. You were supporting that. You believed that this was important. And so he says, you are in my heart. You're in my heart. Uh, interesting when he says, you're all partakers of grace. Uh, I didn't have room to put it on your outline. The word grace there in the original language is the word charis, from where we get the, the term charismatic gifts. And you can translate that word as gifts. You've, already, you've always participated in me with gifts is, is the idea. But uh, the, our translators use the term grace or, or gifts. But he says, because of that, you are in my heart. Uh, there's a very, very special place for them because they did that. So before we move on, I want to say just a couple of things. First of all, no matter where you go to church, you need to have a heart like the Philippians not the Corinthians. The Corinthians never would. And so when, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, you just notice, you know, it's constant marriage troubles, relationship troubles, moral troubles, theological troubles, legal troubles. Uh, it's the only church where Paul has to say, where he has to say, this is the gospel that I preach. He has to define it because there's some real questions. What did you really say yes to when, when you said yes? To the Philippians, he doesn't even have to use the word sin because it's so evident. There was really a change in their life. Their passion was Jesus. Their, their passion was to participate in whatever it is that God is doing. You want to put, wherever you 
go to church. You want to put God first in your finances because the truth is, if God is not first in your finances, he is not first in your life. There's no way around that. Uh, And you want to be like the Philippians. Now, the second thing that I would want to say, the Philippians, they, they set a model for how, how ministry was to be done. Um, when you look at Paul's ministry and you look at Jesus' ministry, in Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 8, verse 1, it's not on your outline, but you can look it up later, uh, it says that Jesus' ministry was completely supported by the people around who believed that what he was doing was important enough that they supported that financially. That set the model. So Paul follows that model, and Paul is completely supported uh, by God's people. Since that time, every church, every ministry has been supported because the people who profess to be believers believe in it so much that they've decided to put God first in their finances. The Philippians didn't just put God first in their finances, they put God first in the finances enough to make sure that as they looked out, Paul was a missionary, they realized that even outside of their church, they needed to participate having the gospel go forward. The idea is that whatever came in wasn't just to keep the lights on in the local church. They supported those outside. So we have modeled, based upon the Philippians, we made the decision when we started the church that the minimum of 10%, of 10% of whatever came in, and usually it's more, would always go out to support missionaries around the world, uh, missions, benevolence, outreach. Uh, The gospel is more than what we're doing here in our local fellowship. It was a month, two months ago now, a church that we support in Lebanon is ministering in a community. ISIS came in, killed a bunch of people, stole 40 of their women, and that they were devastated. The church that we support said, we want to go in, we want to participate, we want to bring healing, we want to bring the gospel. We were able to send finances to them because the people here put God first in their finances, and so we're able to reach out beyond our four walls. Does that make sense? You want to put God first in your finances wherever it is that you call your church home. Uh, it's, it's Paul appreciated it. Every ministry appreciates it. Uh, I think this is where I cry and I go, friends, I need your help. But we're going to move on. So now comes uh, the, the fun part. I mean, the, the first part was fun. You got quiet, but I, I had fun. So Paul realizes as he looks at this church, he can't repay them. He's in prison. So he he says, I I can never repay you for what you've done for me. You're in my heart with joy. So here's what I can do for you. I can make sure that I pray for you. And I believe that if I pray for you, God's going to really take that and use it. So as he does this, we're going to call this uh, the four things that Paul prays for other people. And as we get into this, Uh, I want you to think of that one person, maybe two or three people in your life, that if God were to answer this prayer that Paul is going to pray, um, whether it's a spouse where that relationship is going cold, or it's a child that's going kind of sideways, or somebody in the fellowship, somebody, another believer, a relative who's estranged, 
How would your life be different if God began to answer this prayer? So I'm going to read it there in your outline. And uh, from verses 9 through 11, it says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound. Underline that. Your love may abound. More and more in the knowledge and depth and insight so that we may be able to discern what is best. That you may be able to discern what is best. Underline that. And be pure and blameless. Underline that. Until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul prays this for the Philippians because he believes this is God's will. Because he believes this is God's will. This is a biblical prayer. You can pray this for somebody and expect that God is going to begin to answer this prayer. I pray this for my kids. I I pray it for Cheryl. Uh, There are people in my life that, that I pray this for. But when you think of those difficult relations, those difficult relationships, how would things be different if God began to just answer this prayer as we prayed this consistently for people? So let, let's look at it. You know, and, and let me just say, people can reject us relationally, but they have no ability to stand against our prayers and God working in his spirit in their heart. So the first thing that we notice Pray that they will grow in love. And uh, that word there is agape. It means the love of God. It's also the way that we love other people with the love of God. If God just answered that one prayer in the life of maybe some estranged people, if they're really loving God and, and that caused them to love others the way that God wanted them to, how would that change everything? And then pray that they make wise choices. And it says that they would discern what is best. Wise choices. You know anybody who, who's making some really bad choices right now? I pray this. I pray this for my kids. I have, I have two kids in college. And you know why I pray this for my kids? Because I went to college. <laughs> and there's some stories we don't talk about. <laughs> but you know the deal. So I pray they make wise decisions. And uh, I pray that they will do the right thing to be pure and blameless. And that's moral. That's moral. There's the moral, moral decisions. And I, I wish there was a better way. There's probably a better way to say this. I, I don't even like the way that we're saying this, but uh, pray that they will live for God's glory. That is, they'll live out God's purpose. That they'd have a desire to live out God's purpose, the fruit of righteousness. So what would happen over the course of the next few months, six months or so, as we prayed that for the significant people in our life, maybe those who are doing great right now, but just to see that continue? Or maybe those who are, there's friction in the relationship, if we began to consistently pray that, and God began to answer that, maybe not tomorrow, but over the next couple of months, we began to see what would be different, what would be different in our lives if God did that. I think that this prayer is a great starting point. I want to encourage you to take that and use that. We're going to be talking about prayer uh, a whole lot during this book. Well, did you find that interesting today? Good. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and close in prayer, and uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Paul's ministry. Thank you for the heart of the Philippians. And uh, Lord, give us the heart of the Philippians who had come to the place where it was all about you and, and not the heart of the 
Corinthians, where sadly it was all about them. Lord, we come before you. We ask you to grow us into the people you want us to be. Lord, as you brought to mind the people that we need to pray for over the course of the next days and weeks and months, pray, Father, that we would see you answer this prayer that Paul believed so strongly that uh, you would answer. And so he prayed. We also believe and we pray. Father, thank you for this congregation, their love for you, their love for your word, their love for the things of God. I pray that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.